Hi, I'm Ann DeLisi. And I'm Chef James Regato. And in this episode of Essential Cooking, James and I talk with one of Michigan's most talented and knowledgeable winemakers, Sean O'Keefe of Mari Vineyards, based in the Northwest Lower Peninsula of the state. Sean talks about what sets Michigan wines apart, how to embrace those differences, and how he's adapting his winemaking to climate change. Sean makes some of the most interesting wines in Michigan, um, and that's no accident. You're a, you're a very classically trained winemaker. You spend a lot of time in Germany. Coincidentally, we have a lot of varietals like Riesling that grow very well here and in Germany. So the cold weather, kind of harsh winters, um, you know, kind of, I think, teed him up for Michigan winemaking. But, uh, yeah, I th- you know, Mari is on Old Mission Peninsula, and it's a really beautiful property. And you can find a lot of their wines around Detroit restaurants. I think I would say Mari is one of the more, um, you know, I don't want to, you know, hip kind of wineries that you're seeing, you know, whether it's at She-Wolf or, um, you know, I think you can Tekoi. I think, you know, Sean, you could probably chime in with more restaurants. Chartreuse. Chartreuse, you know, obviously at Mabel. So I think you're seeing um, some of the, you know, the the newer kind of, um, you know, more like hip restaurants wanting to kind of get into Michigan wine. And I think Mari is very accessible for that uh, more unique, creative, and, and winemaker style wineries you have a lot you know there's a lot of sean in that wine which i think is a is a nice shift from where michigan kind of you know might be known for late harvests rieslings cherry wines kind of the sweeter stuff sean is definitely doing some of the most interesting stuff in the uh northern part of michigan so thank you for coming down sean yeah i mean you're a, a big responsibility for that though I, I have a friend up in traverse city jen blakesley has a cook's house a really great restaurant and she kept on telling me I had to get down to Detroit. And I, unfortunately, <laughs> I'll admit it right here, I'd given up on Detroit because I'd always come down here and I'd sell wine and it'd always be some older Italian gentleman um, telling me my wine was too expensive and not sweet enough. And I got tired of it. <laughs> and so I went to Chicago and New York and developed markets there. And then meanwhile, um, all this change was happening in Detroit and I just was not paying attention. And so Jen Blakesley wanted me to talk to her friend James. And finally, she just called him on the phone and put the phone in my ear. <laughs> and within a couple of weeks, he brought up the whole brain trust of all the cool things that were, all the people that were making, that are doing cool things at all the restaurants here. And we kind of had a, um, a meeting down in our cellars where we kind of, why does Michigan, uh, like Detroit restaurants, sell Michigan spirits, Michigan beer, Michigan cider, um, but not Michigan wine. Right. And then I came down and that's, that's what we've been doing ever since. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and I mean, and don't get me wrong. You know, there's 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 some cool stuff. And it, it just that's a obviously a general statement. So to anybody up there that's listening, you know, I mean, Left Foot Charlie, Mobby, you know, there's been a lot of wines that have hit hit lists around town. Mm-hmm. But you know, Michigan wine still definitely gets overlooked at at, at large. It gets overlooked downstate. You know, we definitely mm-hmm. kind of look to California. You know, we you know we look to you know Europe and kind of forget about our own our own wines here. Um, can you talk about how Michigan wine stacks up? I guess if we would say around the country, like how much is exported outside of Michigan? I think that's kind of the issue right there is a lot of the wineries are all, um, it takes a lot of effort to develop markets, especially outside the state and all that. And so most of them don't have the resources or the will to really get beyond that. So there's only a handful that really sell outside the state borders. And I've always made it a point that even if I can barely afford it, I need to do that because if you're not in New York or not in places, not in the, uh, Detroit and Chicago, your, your local culinary capitals, um, then you're going to be forgotten. And uh, that's kind of where we are. And I've been really making a big push and trying to get some of the smaller wineries and other things to really engage more. It's really important. How do you get 
like big restaurants or not even big restaurants, but just notable restaurants from other states to take a chance on your wine. It just seems like you got to like, I know you got to be somewhat of a self-promotion person. You got to get in touch. But and James, you're a restaurant owner. So you have a lot of people come to you and say, you know, carry my wine, carry my this or that. And that's a that is a a relationship um, that you guys are on either end of. Talk a little bit about, James, from your standpoint, what goes into that, and then a little bit from yours, um, Sean, about what, how that, how you forge that relationship and try to, you know, get your wine out there so more people can drink it. I think it's definitely about relationships and synergy. You cannot rely on your distributor. I cannot rely on my distributor to come in and show me cool things. And Sean certainly cannot rely on the distributor to go out and represent his wines. I mean, granted, it's kind of what they're supposed to do, but there's a, you know, there's a lot of responsibilities that already fall on them. And maybe they're not the most passionate person about your product. So I would recommend, uh, you know, as a restaurateur or a chef that, you know, what, what is your philosophy? Who are you as a, as a business? What is your point? Obviously if you're, you know, for me, we're all about a crazy eclectic changing menu, you know, super seasonality featuring um, other uh, like-minded individuals. Mm -hmm. So I, I definitely approach it maybe a little more cerebral, a little more, you know, uh, I want to find somebody doing something that's interesting and has some purpose. And so when I look to wineries, I'm like, okay, well, you know, what, what is the purpose of what, what are they doing? And sometimes, I mean, like we've poured Kendall Jackson because like, I also love pushing back on stigma. I think that Kendall Jackson has a funny stigma of being like too available, Mm -hmm. but it's also pretty well made. So like, I like pouring that and kind of surprising people. But then obviously if I'm talking to a lot, you know, like smaller scale, who's doing it right, despite, you know, the challenges, like that's also interesting to me too. And that's what leads me to people like, you know, to Sean, uh, again, like, you know, left with Charlie's another Michigan winery that I really respect. Um, so, so I'll seek it out. And obviously like, like Sean just mentioned, I kind of came and found him and then mm-hmm. we, we kind of were, Jen Blakesley kind of introduced us, but I think if you're a winemaker, I mean, Sean can obviously, you know, attest to this, you got to kind of find restaurants that you think are on, are mm-hmm. on the same level as what, right. you, know, you know, have other winemakers that you respect. So for, you know, I'm sure when you go to Chicago, Chicago loves Michigan products. I mean, I've always joked around that Chicago would not have a food scene if they didn't have Michigan resources. Mm-hmm. They rely on the West side of the state for the fruit. They rely on the wine, the beer. I mean, tons of farms and produce. I mean, I, I, you know, I say that, you know, Illinois does a good job too, but I mean, if you look at the proximity of Chicago, I mean, mm-hmm. they're basically like a little, a little Michigan city. Right. And I, I think that, you know, it's not too hard to, to explain Michigan wine to Chicago restaurants, but you probably got to find restaurants that already respect mm-hmm. the farm to table, the small producer, you know, so I think that that's how you really get your product out there. Right. Sean, and from your standpoint, I mean, there's so many, so many places that can carry wine and how do you kind of decide how you're going to go about and where you want your wine? I I guess I I would imagine like, this is certainly not my, my forte, but I imagine that it's important to you where your wine is, just like it's important to you, the stories behind the wine and how it tastes, of course. Um, Can you talk about that, Sean? Well, it works on two levels. Um, you have to do your research. I mean, uh, when I was trying to break into the Chicago market, it was difficult because we were just at the beginning of that farm to table movement. And, um, most Michigan wineries, they'd always want to, Oh, I got my wine up at Everest or some restaurant like that. And I knew that this is where people go for business lunches. They're not going to take a big risk on a weird wine from Michigan to impress some colleagues from Japan or something mm-hmm. like that. So I basically ignored all the steakhouses, all the things where all the, the big guys fought over and found the eclectic little places, the, you know, Lua Cafe or 
Although, and then finally, you end up finding somebody who's a big supporter. In my case, it was one-off hospitality of Edward Satana, the publican. And once I got the wines, when they opened uh, one of the re- uh, restaurants with one of our wines, all of a sudden, all doors open. It was just kind of funny. Everybody waits for somebody to say it's okay, and then it goes pretty quickly. Well, how long ago was that? Oh, God, that's uh, 15 years ago or something oh, okay. like that. Okay. Um, that was my, my family's wine, Chateau Grand Traverse. Mm-hmm. And, um, but the other way, when, especially when I get outside of the Great Lakes Basin, um, Michigan's been exporting people like Ireland has been. I mean, we've been in recession up until recently for most of my life. And Michigan people are everywhere, and they are, they are very featured in the hospitality industry. You go to all these fine restaurants all across the country, and there's somebody who's running the general manager, the chef, is from Michigan, and they have a fond um, place in our heart for it, and that's opened a lot of doors too. I mean, I remember we had our wine at Aquavit back when it was the big thing with Marcus Anderson and all that, mm-hmm. and they were serving a Gamay Noir from us for about $20 a glass with uh, high-end herring, and I just, I, anything was possible after that. I realized uh, <laughs> So, um, but we have to know what we are. I mean, in the past, we've been trying to, like, hey, we're as good as California. We're not weird. We're, you know, mm-hmm. we can make wine there, and I don't think that's the path. I think we should embrace... Um, our differences and some of our quirkiness. And um, we grow grapes on the very edge of where you can grow them on the North American continent because of the cold temperatures from Canada above us. But we're really good at it. If our reds have a little bit of acidity, instead of trying to hide that, actually make that into a style and find other wine regions in the world that have done that well. In my case, Northeast Italy, Slovenia, places like that, that um, it might be mountain agriculture, but it does mimic some of our weather patterns. And then just own it and have a good story and make really good wine. And if you do something truly excellent, it might take, take a decade, but people will eventually figure it out. And lastly, the demise of the big gatekeepers like at the Wine Spectator and Robert Parker has been a real boon. So I'm really grateful for, if you want to call it hipsters or whatnot, is um, people make up their own minds about things and um, a lot more. Sometimes some bizarre wines that I don't, I don't get very popular, but I'll take that as part of the price of um, having people have more open minds now. Mm-hmm. Um one of the things that you were talking about is being able to grow grapes in the climate in Michigan, mm-hmm. which can be very unpredictable and certainly can be a challenge. But I was on your website and your hoop house. I wanted you to talk about Nellisera. Is that it? Yeah, can you a- talk about that? Because I, I have a very small hoop house, very modest, to grow a couple things. But you have something pretty impressive. Can you talk about what <clears throat> that whole thing is about? Well, first of all, you got to plant grapes that can handle the cold winter temperatures. Um, so genetically, you look for grapes that come from the, you know, I call it the Holy Roman Empire, you know, somewhere Austria, Hungary, Germany, Northeast Italy. Right. But even with that, um, we have some years where summer never quite comes, like 2019, I'm sure it was pretty cool down here. So the owner of the winery, Marty Lagana, lived in England. He saw him growing fruit trees and things under hoop houses. And so he started planting like Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc and Merlot. When I first saw him, I thought it was the silliest thing I've ever seen. I was like, I wasn't winemaker yet. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's a shame on the region. And then I got the grapes when I became winemaker. And I'm like, oh, this is cool. These are really <laughs> tasting good. But my whole push was, let's not grow things we can already grow. Let's grow, let's push the borders. So we planted Nebbiolo and Scapatino, uh, Petit Verdot, um, and things like this, and went full off, you know, I mean, they grow Scapatino in a town in Propoto in Northeast Italy and Traverse City, and maybe one place <laughs> in Australia. Um, and what they do is um, they don't necessarily, um, they're not enclosed. It's not like there's parrots flying around the steam. It's not like uh, Arco Santi or anything like that. It's, they're pretty much open all summer, but in September, we lower these 
and these are large hoop piles. We can drive tractors under them in the whole bit. But it, uh, when it gets kind of cool in September, like we can start getting temperatures in the 30s at the end of August on some nights. Mm-hmm. The year, uh, the German grapes, like recently, you know, once it goes back up to 50 next day, they're they're making sugar and they're happy. Some of these other grapes, though, it gets cold enough too many nights in a row, and they start shutting down and not wanting to make devote any more resources to reproducing or, or hence grapes, and they shut down. The hoop houses raise the temperature by about 12 to 15 degrees. I mean, it's warmer in the day, cooler at night, um, but it keeps them growing and maturing all the way into November, and that allows us to ripen some of these uh, grapes and have those really cool flavors. It still tastes like Michigan. It's not like all of a sudden we have Napa Cab coming out of there. It's still mm-hmm. our sandy soil, still our our basic climate patterns, so we just bump it up a notch. Mm-hmm. And uh, also, it keeps the rain off. It allows us not to spray. It's easy to be organic under them, and uh, it's very expensive to do, so we don't do a lot of it. Um, but it is something that I think we're the only ones in the world and maybe somebody in British Columbia that do this. You know, and too, I mean, I've, I've, I've definitely visited quite a few wineries and I've tasted in a lot of cellars. And what's cool about what Sean's doing is like all these different, you know, varietals and or blends or like you can taste it. I mean, you would done in a cellar and he'll we're pulling out of barrels and things that have, you know, four more years on them. And this is a blend and this, you know, it's so cool seeing his, you know, pantry more or less. I mean, that's basically what it is because a lot of these wines are unfinished, but all the nuances he's talking about to see it in finished form uh, in the barrel, I guess semi-finished before it gets blended and actually bottled. But I mean, everything he's talking about, it's just, it's so stimulating to go down and see what he's working on. And I think that's, that's why, you know, so many Detroit restaurants started carrying it. Cause like that is a super unique thing for Michigan wineries. Everything he's talking about is really what sets, you know, Mari apart. Mm-hmm. But you know, Sean, you, know, you, you touched on it, but Sean's a unique situation because your family is Chateau Grand Traverse, where you still have, you know, shares in the company. You're still, you know, still a, a partner in there, but you make wine at Mari. And that, I mean, Chateau Grand Traverse is still an excellent winery. I mean, there, I, I mean, I, text, I think I texted you a few months ago. I just opened their dry Riesling, which I hadn't in a long time. And I think, I mean, on a, I don't know, in a grocery store, I don't know what it costs down here at Meyer or something like 20 bucks. I mean, if, you know, it's, oh no, it's even less than that. It's crazy. Like it's like yeah, it's like yeah. you know, I, under twenty dollar wine. And I mean, I think this is drinking. There's not a better drinking dry riesling in the world for this price. And I texted. I was like, "What in God's name is going? This is the most delicious wine for this price, I think, in the world." And you know that, and that, and that, I'm proud of that because I mean that's that's a very Michigan product. Michigan dry riesling. I mean, we're kind of known for it, but. You forget that. And then when you mm-hmm. drink something like the Chateau Grand Traverse Dry Riesling, you're like, oh my God. Now they're, they're Gamay Noir too. It's also True. Yeah. ridiculously priced. I yeah, mean, it's, yeah. It's, it's super, super affordable. Mm-hmm. These are the wines you should be drinking. I mean, really, if you are if you like wine in Michigan, you should be drinking the Gamay and the Dry Riesling from Chateau, Chateau Grand Traverse like, tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Ian DeLisi. I'm Rob Reinhardt. And we're about to bring back the perfect opportunity to honor your favorite pet and support WDET. During our spring fundraiser, Anne and I will combine our shows so you can honor your dog. Or your cat. Or your dog. And WDET with a gift of support. We're looking forward to hearing about your pets, no matter what kind of cat that is. Cats and dogs and any other pet you may have will be part of our fundraiser. And if you can't wait till the weekend, make your gift now at WDET.org slash give. Or call 800-959-9338. One of the things, uh, as I was on your website, one of the most fascinating videos I've seen in a long time was the creation of that cave you have. That 
talk about that and why that was built and how long it took. It looked like at least two winters went by, if yeah, I was keeping track of the seasons well, Two and a half there. years or so. So that's the the owner, Marty Lacana. He always envisioned building a winery, and he used to sell the grapes to my family. And we knew he was going to build a place, but I should have known it was going to be on that scale. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's it's um, it's several, let's see, one, two, three stories of tunnels underground, um, caves. Uh, uh, it's It took about two and a half years of excavating, putting these large, what they use for culverts, really, for like a highway overpasses and things, and made these caves where we age all the wine. And then uh, brought all this rock in from the Garden Peninsula for the, it wasn't, it's not veneer. This is like a medieval building. And I was worried at first. I thought it was going to look like uh, Olive Garden or something. And <laughs> when they started hauling in like this, like these huge chunks of stone and all the stonemasons were going, it turned out pretty cool. Um, it was remarkable to see how that came together. Um, can you talk about why it was that, it was so like, the, an undertaking like that was worth it? for the taste of the wine? Well, the main thing, uh, Marty comes from the energy industry and he doesn't like spending money on energy. So the idea of just using the earth itself to cool the wine and keep it at the right temperature, about 54, 55 degrees, which is ground temperature, is perfect for aging wine. It's how we've, it, and a lot of our red wines um, have higher tannins because they're uh, uh, purposely so from Northeast Italy. And they take longer time to ripen and mature in the, in the barrels. And we need that cool uh, coolness there. And, um, yeah, there's something about being down in the, in the, in the bowels of the earth, making wine. It feels very mythological for some reason. <laughs> you're you like know. a, you're like a monk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I left my family's winery, the joke was, uh, you know, I'm the younger son, you know, what's the younger son doing, you know, back in the day, you know, the older days was went off to the monastery to make wine and eliminate <laughs> manuscripts and look what I'm doing, you know? So, it, I mean, the monks have been writing things about how winemaking from the very beginning and, um, it's something that you can learn from what people have done before without necessarily just being old fashioned. There's a lot of things that just haven't been done better. So we might as well not forget that and pretend that everything modern is always better. So, so Sean, what, what do you anticipate changing in Michigan wine with climate change? Like, what are you, cause obviously we're no, the things we're known for is very much dictated by weather. And as the weather increases, you know, uh, whether it's volatility or, I mean, you know, just this year alone, right? I mean, we had basically an 80 degree spike in early May and then we had frost and like, you no, know, which is obviously the worst case scenario, but I don't think, the, I don't think, I don't think the frost was too bad for you guys up there. It, it, it wasn't a killing frost, it seemed, but it definitely made me nervous for my apple blossoms and things in the yard. But what do you expect to see change in Michigan winemaking? Well, we have, I mean, the climatic data shows that we have warmed up, um, uh, I went to a recent presentation where a German professor showed that Michigan, where we are, is where the Rheingau was in the 80s. Now, the Rheingau is now where Elsass is. Elsass is where uh, Burgundy is. Burgundy is where the Rhone is, and the Rhone's where Libya is. I mean, it's kind of uh, – uh, we're not going to see the extremes uh, warming like the, the continental Europe is seeing right now. I mean, they're, they're, talk, I mean, they're moving higher up on mountains. Uh, Elsass is talking about – uh, bringing in new varieties and reds. I mean, it's pretty radical thoughts for these old wine regions. For us, um, it's the volatility that has us a little spooked because, um, you know, we had those two years of winter, uh, those polar vortices, which is predicted by the, the warming model that we have a sluggish uh, jet stream around the Arctic and then it can just spill down instead of having maybe 20 minutes or two hours of cold weather, we'll have two weeks of 10, 15 below zero. When those lakes freeze, especially Lake Michigan and uh, Superior, 
then all of a sudden we're Fargo. I mean, all of a sudden we've lost all our protection. Now this spring, the bays were unfrozen. They didn't freeze this year. The lakes didn't uh, t- uh, to any great extent. So when we did get those frosts, our vines were still very dormant because the water kept it cool. The apple guys may have been hit kind of hard uh, because they they come out a little earlier than the um, the grapes. Mm-hmm. Um, but volatility, I mean, all wine, it might be just how we talk about our modern world, but disasters are part of everything we do now. I mean, the West Coast has been on fire for two years straight. From British Columbia, one of my friends up there says it never goes out. It's always burning. Australia and drought, um, hail and burgundy. Um, uh, Europe just got hailed, like parts of Germany and uh, Spain got nailed by hail. And this is all from volatile weather from, um, I mean, it always has happened through history, but the the uh, frequency and the intensity is going up. And that has me concerned um, because if we uh, get those 20 below zero uh, winter temperatures more than a, once or twice a decade, I don't know what I can do. There's nothing I can really do to protect against that. Because that, that will kill the vines. Yeah. I mean, at some point, we they haven't yet. We actually have dealt with it. I actually, after 14 and 15, I felt if we can survive that, we can survive everything except maybe a direct nuclear blast. These vines, are, <laughs> they all survived it. It was crazy, but we didn't get much fruit. And that's actually what led into cider making, too, because you do need hedges in a climate like ours. There is going to be at least one year out of 10 that we're going to have a severely diminished crop. And in the past, winemakers have always pretended that didn't happen because we never want people to like think of us as a marginal area. But I mean, the fires in California, the drought, everybody has their terroir, their thing they can't control. And sometimes ours is cold winter temperatures. So we, we plant in the right places. Um, but in any case, you know, and then have things like apples or other things that can survive winter a bit better that when we don't have a crop, we have something that we can go to instead of bringing tanker trucks of wine in from California or something. Which is another thing that a lot of people don't realize. I mean, Michigan and cider makers do it too here, but we still rely on California for a decent amount of juice. I mean, there's a lot of winemakers that buy California juice. And, you know, some people are shocked when they learn about this and feel lied to or something. Right. But it's a, it's not an uncommon thing. And, you know, I whether or not it's, you know, good, bad, wrong, right. I mean, if you like affordable, consistent wine, mm-hmm. sometimes you need to think outside the traditional, you know, Michigan border. Sure. I mean, what, what is your, uh, you know, without obviously throwing your friends under the bus, you know, what, what is your opinion of bringing in outside juice? I mean, you obviously strive to not do it. I, that's my founding principle at Mari is I will never, ever in any circumstances, uh, blend anything in that we don't grow ourselves. Which is why you've gone into cider. Yeah. Cause I want to, right. but I'm also, I'm wide eyed. I'm not going to, I remember last time we had uh, cold winter temperatures and you can always count on a certain winemaker to come on the uh, TV shows and radio and go, I can't remember the last time this ever happened. I'm like, it happened six years ago. <laughs> um, and I think that, like I said before, I mentioned is that we were kind of in denial because we didn't want people questioning why we're even growing grapes up there. We've been around for almost 44 years now. I mean, I think we can get over that, but I do prepare for it. So I don't, I don't pretend it doesn't happen. I actually do a lot of sparkling wine that I can age for a long time. So I, I'm stockpiling knowing I'm going to have some years where I'm really down on wine. Uh, the, the point being is um, planning for it and not pretending it isn't happening. I think that's where a big change in Michigan wines can be confidence that we can have red wines of acidity. We can have uh, lighter red wines that have multiple layers to them and all these things because we're not um, a Mediterranean climate and we should embrace that. And if we do have confidence, yeah, we might have to charge a little bit more, but then we got to make our case that it's really worth it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and one thing that's pretty cool um, in the beverage world right now, and there's a lot of like 
innovation going on, whether that's things that have been done before being reintroduced or it's actual new uh, techniques, but there's something called paquette, which is kind of done, I don't want to say poorly, but like there's some not great paquettes in the world. Paquette is basically, uh, essentially it's like a rehydrated grape mash. So it's like you make your wine and then you basically add water and make more wine, usually a lower alcohol percentage, maybe a little bit funkier, not as precise. Correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, but it's kind of like, a, you know, kind of like for the workers, kind of like a, like a second tier kind of alcoholic beverage just to utilize the product. And maybe it's not meant to be distributed around the world historically. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it was, but you paid your workers, you know, that basically, um, you know, keep them semi inebriated and, uh, um, and not give them any of the good stuff. Yeah. Well, so, uh, so that's the Genesis, yeah. but Sean is doing, um, and, and you know, Ryan from Angry Orchard was doing it and some of the other people are doing it as well, but it doesn't really have a, a category. It's not, uh, it's, there's no real name for it yet, but it's basically Paquette using cider instead of water. And so we poured one last night at the dinner and it was, uh, you want to, you can give me the breakdown. Scappuccino and Nebbiolo. And a little bit of Sangiovese. So right when the um, red wine fermentations were done and we were pressing the grapes, that's when we brought the juice in um, from our, our friend Charles's uh, orchards. And we put the grape skins and fermented them with the grapes and out of the, the apple juice. And it, it draws some of the tannins, some of the acids that are in grapes that are not in um, apples. And it rounds the wine out, and it, it's to me it's a natural because I get a second use out of my grape skins, but I'm not making some watery um, uh, mess that a lot of piquettes are, and uh, it just makes sense. Especially who's going to compete with me in making scappuccino cider with heirloom apples from Michigan? I mean, I'm a I'm a category of one, and always will be. So it's kind of it works that way too. And it really drinks. It's kind of like the natural wine palette. You know, it's definitely falling into like a funkier, acidic, kind of like cloudy, you know, it's a very interesting beverage. I love it because it's, it's a total food product. I mean, you start sipping on it and you're ready to, you want to, you want to eat something oh, right. crunchy, fresh, raw, I mean, grilled fish. I mean, it goes with a lot of different things. And it was a, you know, almost like an, uh, almost in a way like an aperitivo. It's almost like got some of that, you know, Aperol kind of Campari vibes going to it. So like it makes you kind of, it kind of makes you hungry. But that's that's something that I think is is really cool about Sean is that like instead of yeah saying we need to have one product that's a hit and make a ton of it, he's like no let's just let's just continue to innovate, and you end up with something like that where it's like, like I said doesn't have, even have a name or a category yet, but I guess a cider based paquette. Um, that's something that I think feels very Michigan. You know that's something where I'm like I, I we pour it proudly. I'm excited about it. People love it when they try it. It's not something they've had before. Right. It's pushing the palate a little bit, but also rewarding them with like with taking a risk, which is it's a nice change from you know what people might expect. I approach it with a little bit of trepidation because sometimes when the wine world meets either the cider world or the beer world, it's kind of like rap and metal. I mean, some <laughs> of the things that come out of it are just not listenable, and I I was very hesitant. Um, I I'm 51 years old. I've I a couple of years ago I caught myself talking like the winemakers that were. Uh, this age when I was younger and I, I sound like, you know, get off my lawn because I didn't <laughs> like all these new the orange wines and piquettes and I was making them because I've tried a lot of bad versions of them. But usually when I don't like something, that means the clock's already ticking that within two years I'll be making it, but how I think it should be done. And this is my take on piquette because I think just adding water back to grape skins is not enough. That's a, um, that might be interesting for a local beverage, um, but the cider has flavor and intensity, and we have such great apples. It makes so much sense to combine the two. 
Yeah, it's really it's an agricultural statement of Michigan. I think that's that's you know, and I mean, and you want to be Rage Against the Machine, you do not want to be Limp Biscuit. That's what I'm hearing. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you can find out more about Mari Vineyards and Sean O'Keefe's work at marivineyards.com. Our thanks to Sean O'Keefe for talking with us, to you for listening, and we would like to thank Lamarca Prosecco for their support. From the hills of Veneto, Italy, you can never go wrong with Prosecco, whether it's in a spritz or drinking straight. Joan Isabella is our executive producer with producer David Lyons and assistant producer Lisa Brancato, editing by Rowan Nemisto. Production support provided by Studios on the Pond, original music by the Mallet Brothers. This is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. 